Well, this morning um, I woke up and um, I tried to, uh, normally when I've done my Christmas lights, I've just run them all <clears throat> to one uh, big outlet outside my front door and I've just used my lights to uh, turn them on and off. I thought this year I'm going to try to do it right. So I went and bought a couple of those timer things that uh, allow you to uh, set your timer and you don't have to worry about it. And so for the last two mornings, my lights have went on and I haven't been able to figure out why. And so this morning I was up early in my Christmas lights, half of them were on. And I was sitting there thinking of that and I came across this quote in my pondering. The two didn't really have anything to do with each other. I just happened to be up. And so uh, I found this quote that describes Advent, which is kind of we're in this series that we're calling Adventually, uh, just talking about the, the eventual coming of Jesus, that as you go through your Old Testament, you just find all these glimpses. But what is Advent all about? It's not just about this. And I love this quote from, from Duke Kwan, who's a pastor at West. Uh, it says this, Advent is not four weeks of Christmas. It is rather a season of hopeful aching, watchful waiting amidst the very conditions, the depravity the disease, the division, the despair, and death that made Christmas necessary at all. I like that quote, because I think, why would we take time? Why is Advent a big deal? Um, because the Christmas season um, is not just a season where we celebrate where everything is good and fine, right? There may be some things that we should celebrate, and that's a fine part of Christmas. It doesn't have to be a downer, but we need to be honest about it. Advent and Christmas are seasons of aching, of waiting, because things aren't fine and often feel like they're kind of falling apart in our life. In the, this year, regardless of COVID or other things, this year has kind of brought some of those things into our lives where we have to wrestle with some of those things that are a bit broken, some of those things that are disappointing. Division, uh, disease, depravity, despair, death, whatever positive word you want to put in there or depressing word you want to put in there, um, that's is the way many people feel. And so it feels a little bit as if the world is out of control, and that is an unsettling feeling for us. Somebody else put it this way. There's a theologian, last name of Boyce, who, who came up with this little uh, saying to describe the way the world feels sometimes when he said that God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at the present, the other side's winning. And uh, we can relate to that. It feels a little bit like that sometimes in our life. I read a cartoon back that came back from the 80s. Remember the 80s, that great decade, years and years ago, um, back uh, when I was a kid. And so uh, those, but there was a Reader's Digest, which is a magazine, another thing that we don't use anymore. It's a magazine from back in the day. Um, but it showed a husband and wife talking about when they were going to watch the news. Because kids, there was a time when the news wasn't 24 or 7. It was like 5 o'clock or 10 o'clock, and that was your news, right? And so, but the wife was saying to her husband, shall we watch the 5 o'clock news and get indigestion or wait for the 10 o'clock news and have insomnia? And so uh, the blessing of 2020 is that we have 24-7 news and we live with severe cases of both of those things. And so it's, uh, it's great to be alive, I guess. And so, um, so all of that can sometimes make the world feel a bit out of control. And there are reasons to despair. There are reasons to be discouraged. There are hard things in life. And we need to be honest about that. And Christmas doesn't erase those. It may hide them behind the glitter and tinsel and Christmas lights that won't go off. But it, it, they're real. Those are real things in so many of our lives. But the question that I want us to ask and kind of think about today is because those things are present, does that mean that we should give up on God? 
that we should give up on our hope in him. One of my favorite Christmas songs is a song that's been around for a century and a half, but uh, Casting Crowns made it popular 10, 12 years ago um, when they refreshed it. Um, the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And I like it because it's honest. It's an honest Christmas song. Um, it's an honest assessment of where Christmas fits into most of our lives. A lot of Christmas songs, movies, stories, they all have happy endings. Everything works out for good. And, and those are fun. Those, are, those have their, their place but there comes a time, there's also a place to be honest that many of our real life stories don't have happy endings or simple resolutions. Those difficult parts of our lives don't mean though that God isn't there or he's not helping us through them. And so that song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, um, resonated with me because it's honest with us about that. And it's based on a poem that was written by uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow um, back in 1863. And um, Henry was, wrote that poem because he was in a very hard place in his life. His wife had died a few years before from a fire in their home, and he had been scarred from that same fire. So he bore those scars. He had just learned that his son had been severely injured in the midst of the Civil War. He was discouraged. His life was hard. Um, and then on Christmas morning, he heard bells ringing from a, a nearby church. And he wrote a poem that was made into a hymn and remade numerous times since then. But I just want you to listen to the song, the lyrics to the song. I don't want to read all of them. You should go back and listen to it later if you want to. But it simply says this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play. And mild and sweet, their songs repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And the bells are ringing like a choir they're singing. In my heart I hear them, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace, peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. But the bells are ringing like a choir they're singing. Does anybody hear them? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then this last stanza is my favorite. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So I, I love that song because I think it reminds us that in a crazy and broken world, Faith is not always an easy thing to find and to hold on to. It can be easy for us to, to begin to lose faith in all the crazy things when we look around and see how strong hate is and, and the mocking of godly good things. For most of us, faith has been a relatively easy thing in our lives, if you're old like me, um, until the recent times has been more challenging to that. But regardless of what generation of believer you happen to come up in, God has always provided pieces of evidence to encourage our faith, uh, to encourage us to trust Him and to obey Him. And one of those things, one of those pieces of, of encouragement that He's given us is our theme for today. If you read your Core 52 reading this week, uh, you know this week's theme is prophecy. Now, prophecy is one of those things in the Bible that you get God's ability to look into the future and tell His people what is going to happen? 
But God doesn't do that just to show off because he's smarter than us. God does that to build trust in him. God does that because he wants us to be encouraged to say when God says something, we can trust him in that. He will do what he says he will do. And so as he announced these things through the course of the story of Scripture, through prophets and apostles and a few others, he gave people bits and pieces of, of information, of news over time, all with the purpose of inviting them, like bells ringing, that he would invite them into this whole plan of trusting him, that he, he knew what he was doing and he knows what he is doing. And so oftentimes when we go through difficult, dark, discouraging times, as we said a few weeks ago, we may not always understand or, or, under, or get the, the, the whens and the hows and the whats of, of the story, but knowing the who is so important. And, and I think these prophecy things that God does, especially in the Old Testament, announcing the coming of Jesus the Messiah, I think they are all uh, bells that just sound out reminding us that our God is not dead. He is there. He is at work. And even though we don't understand all the timings and the, and the hows and the winds, we certainly know the who. He's got it under control. And so a couple of examples. Isaiah has a section in, in his book uh, that he wrote um, from Isaiah 44 through 48, 50, something like that. There's a beautiful past section of scripture in which Isaiah is speaking hope to his people. He's, much of that book is judgment. It's, um, it's doom and gloom because there's a lot of bad things that are going to come their way that he predicted um, that were going to come their way because of their sin and rebellion against God. But that didn't mean that God was done with them. And so you find verses like this, Isaiah 44, verse 8. says, Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Another chapter, chapter 45, verse 21. Declare what, it, what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the past, from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. And finally in chapter 48, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you. So that you could not say, well, my wooden images, my own little idols brought them about. My wooden image and my metal God ordained them. And so God over and over was building credibility in his character, in his word. If you and I were to go to a, uh, a pool table and uh, you were to pull out the stick and the balls and, and you were to say, you know what, eight ball corner pocket, and, and you did it, I would think well of your pool playing ability. Um, if I was to say that and I couldn't do it, you would know that I'm a terrible pool player and that would be right. And so um, that's kind of what God is doing. He's calling his shots to build confidence in his word, in his actions, in his character. And so throughout the Old Testament, there is a stream, a thread that runs uh, book by book, story by story, uh, over 1,500 years worth of time. Um, that in the oftentimes it seems like whenever God's people were in those dark, discouraging, despairing times is when God would show up and he would give them one of these glimpses. Oftentimes it was meant to encourage them in the present, but it all, always almost had a, a bigger picture to it. The, the language was bigger than just the present situation. 
And it was always as you look back and string them together, you realize that this is about a bigger thing. This is about the Messiah. It's about Jesus who was to come. And so today I want to read through Psalm 2, which is one of those signposts that stands in Israel's history. It was probably written 900, 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. Um, And yet it points to the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus through what it says. And so it comes, if you're a theater person, this particular psalm can be broken into four different um, acts that you can understand it through. Uh, Each one's three verses long. And um, act one, David comes to us and he asks a question. He looks around at at the kind of the the chaos around him, uh, angry nations who don't like God or his his laws or his people. Uh, You've got all these people, even in Israel, that are just throwing God off. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to do it his way. And so this psalm asks an important question in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So just kind of get the feel of this psalm, right? You've got a group of people in this act that are angry, that are plotting against someone. And so you have to ask the question, well, what are they so angry about? What are they plotting Well, verse 2 and 3 show us exactly what they're angry about and what they're plotting. When it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what are these people angry about? They're angry about God asking or calling them to live by his wisdom and his counsel and his law. They are ready to just throw God off of them. They, they, they just don't want his sovereignty, his leadership over their life. And that is an attitude that, if we're honest with ourselves, can live in every one of us. Every one of us can stand before God and say, I don't want you. I don't want your bothering in my life. I want to do this my way, right? We've all been there. We've all done that. This psalm kind of magnifies that to a, a national level, to, the, to a whole nation of people, a whole group of leaders who use their influence to try to cast off God and his influence from their life. And, and that raises the idea that we like the idea of God being a savior, but with the idea of Jesus being our savior comes the idea that Jesus is our Lord. And those two things can't be separated And a lot of people do want to separate them. I want Jesus to be my savior. I want him to save me from all my mess, but I don't want him to interfere with what I want to do. And so this psalm challenges that attitude in in us or in in anyone that stands before God and says, well, I, I want your blessings of salvation, but I don't want your messing with my life through your leadership or your lordship over my life. The two go together. And so act one gives us this scene of a group of people that are angry and rebelling against God. And so you think, well, well, is God nervous? Is God worried about that? Especially if all the nations together are gathered up together against him. But what's his, his response? Act 2 shows us that in verse 4. That he who sits in the heavens, he frets, he worries. No, what's he do? He laughs. That the one who sits in the heavens laughs at this. The Lord holds them in derision. And so note that. You've got the anger and the, the, the fermenting, fermenting, whatever that word is, growing anger towards God and his, his lordship over their life. But God is not bothered by that. God is okay. He is calm 
There is peacefulness in heaven still. Verses five and six, he begins to speak. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, the nations can rage and be angry. They can plot. They can do all their things. But his king sets securely. So who is this king? Who is this king that, that God is speaking to? We looked a few weeks ago at Psalm 110, which talks about that the king to come would be David's son, but also would be David's Lord, all right? This is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, Jesus himself would say. And so God says securely, this, his king is going to sit securely. Act, act three comes along and the scene changes subtly from the God kind of coronating the king here to the idea of this, the king speaking for himself. He says this in verse 7, I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, that's the idea of, of a coronation, that uh, of someone being given a title, being given a role, and you get the idea that God the Father is bestowing upon God the Son um, his title as son, this idea of you are going to serve as my king and as my, as my Messiah. Verses eight and nine, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so while all the people are angry on earth in heaven, God's sovereignty and God's plan is, is fine. God is calm, he's under control. His plan will not be derailed even by all the nations of the earth. And finally, in Act, in Act 4, the psalmist then says, okay, there's the scene, right? On earth, there's anger. There's, there's, they don't want God. They don't want his meddling in their life. But God's firmly established on his throne. He's calm, working out his plans. And so what should we do with that? And so he invites us in verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, do the math here. Figure this out. Be wise in your response. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, which is a beautiful picture of just bowing in homage to a, a royalty, kissing their ring, that kind of thing, the kiss of, of loyalty, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so we can summarize this passage in, in three things, three little statements here that just kind of summarize this picture, this statement that God gave to Israel. It's, it's, it could be used for David and his kings, but certainly seems like it feels a lot bigger than just David and an Israelite king. This is certainly pointing to something much grander than that. And so what's the first thing you learn here? The nations have rebelled against God. The nations being made up of individuals who each one of them have said to God, I don't want to do it your way. We're all prodigal sons. I don't want to live with my dad. I don't want to do it his way. I want to go do it my own way. That's the story of each human being on this planet. And when you put nations together, uh, it just magnifies oftentimes, right? And so the nations have rebelled against God. And so you find this scene in verses 1 through 3. But it's an interesting thing that when you get to the New Testament, um, this is a psalm that's quoted a lot. And the thing that they quote is, is the reason that even though the nations may be in rebellion to God, that for those who are trying to follow after God, who are still trying to trust and obey God, that there's not a reason to live in fear of that. There's not a reason to think, well, I should give up on God because all the powerful people that I know, all the powerful people of, of earth seem to be rallying against God. Well, what should I do? Well, 
the early believers in the book of Acts, um, just months following the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, um, they met that opposition. They met some of this exact anger and rage directed at them because they were God's people at that time. And in Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John, two of the early church leaders, are arrested. They are brought before the, the Sanhedrin, the same group of people who not long before had crucified Jesus. And they brought um, him, them, before them, and they threatened them. Said, look, you need to quit doing this whole preaching Jesus thing, all right? You're getting people riled up. You're getting people uh, turning away from good Jewish faith and all that kind of stuff. Um, you need to quit this. Or the implication was the same thing that happened to Jesus will happen to you. So they're eventually released. And if you're an early Christian living um, a life now that feels very ostracized from most things, right? You got your general population, you got your general flow of life, and these Christians are being pushed to the margins quickly. Uh, sometimes by having their things confiscated, their livelihoods or their lives are being threatened. It was a scary time. And so in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John come back and they report to the church what has happened to them, they begin to pray. And they don't pray for an easy life. They don't pray that the persecutors will go away. What they pray for is Psalm 2, to be bold in the face of the raging nations. Listen to what it says in Acts 4, verse 24. When they heard this, speaking about Peter and John's report, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. Where do they get that thought? It's because of Psalm 2's implications. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote um, verse 2 and 3 of Psalm, uh, Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And so they quote that. They draw from that passage of Scripture, and then they make the application in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There's that kingly thing again, right? That anointed, that Messiah word. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So these early Christians take this psalm, they see the struggle and the hard things in their life, and they say, God, the same truths of Psalm 2 that were true a thousand years ago, now that we've seen Jesus, they are still true for us. And so give us boldness to keep living in faith, to keep living in obedience, to follow you, and to serve you with the best of our lives. And so that courage came from the second reality. I think this, this text teaches to us is simply the idea that God is sovereign, that he is over all, that he has a calm assurance in the face of our rebellion and the world's rebellion, that God is calm. He is calmly assured that he's not worried. He's not sitting there thinking, well, what if this country adds to their list? What if these group of people don't go my way? He's not worried about that. Because his seat is secure, because he is sovereign. But God has a predetermined plan to deal with our rebellion. That God has a plan through his anointed one, through his king, to deal with all of that stuff. 
And so you find the person of the Messiah, you find the power of the Messiah um, that's going to be flushed out and visualized for us in the person of Jesus. And finally, this, the third thing is that we must submit to God and his anointed while there is time. And so again, that invitation, that same thing that was true a thousand years before Jesus now stands true 2,000 years after Jesus, that we are called to be a part of that. And so Psalm 2 it stands as one of those places in Scripture where you get this grand picture of one who's not there yet, but is coming. And you can add to this list a bunch of passages of Scripture that as you draw a thread through the Old Testament, um, in sometimes random and unexpected places, you get these little references to one who is coming. And if you did your reading this week at the end of the Core 52 chapter, there was a book that was referred to there called The Case for Jesus the Messiah by John Ankerman and Walter Kaiser and John Weldon. And in that book, they take just 13 or so of, of the predictive prophecy pick of, of scriptures in the Old Testament. And there's dozens more they could have added to it, but they came up with this kind of picture to say, well, this is who the Messiah must be and does Jesus fit this? And over and over again, you find that the story of Jesus fits all of these things, right? For example, Genesis 3, sin enters the world. God is talking to, to Satan and to Adam and Eve. And, and there's a conversation there in Genesis 3 where you get the, the implication that a, a male descendant of Eve is eventually going to come and crush the head of Satan, all right, so that's your first little clue. You have no idea who that is if you're before Jesus, but you know when that, that promise is coming. Add to that, Genesis 12, 17, 22, God three different times comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the nations of this earth through you, through your descendants. And so that narrows it down even more. You've got a male descendant of Abraham's family. Deuteronomy chapter 18, he will be a great prophet with the authority to teach like Jesus. Because Deuteronomy 18 talks about how one like Moses will arise from among you. Uh, so again, he narrows it down. He'll, be, he'll have this authority like Moses did. Psalm 22, he will be mocked and people will cast lots for his garments while he suffers. Just that picture of what the Messiah will go through. Psalm 110, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He will be David's Lord while he's also David's son. So there's this weird thing that he preexisted David, but he's born after David. And so how do you mesh that together without Jesus? Uh, Isaiah 9 he will be the, child, uh, be the child born who is God and who will have an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah 53, he will be wounded and bruised and smitten and spit upon and mocked and killed with thieves and bear the sins of many. He'll be rejected by his own people, pierced for our transgressions, be buried in a rich man's tomb and come back to life after his death. And so you get this picture, you think, well, who in the world is Isaiah talking about? And so you get to the time of Jesus and you begin to connect these dots. Uh, Jeremiah 23, he will be Jehovah, our righteousness, which is what Christ became for us. Daniel chapter 9 talks about he will be a Messiah who comes to Jerusalem 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is given, which is a kind of obscure time. But you play out the timeline, you get Jesus again. Micah 5, he will be born in Bethlehem, but, what, but has uh, existed eternally. Again, born in Bethlehem, always been around. Uh, number 11, Zechariah chapter 9. He'll be the king who has salvation and comes riding on a donkey. That's the triumphal entry. 
Uh, Zechariah 12, he will be Jehovah, the one pierced by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's the crucifixion again. Malachi chapter 3, he will actually come to the temple in Jerusalem, but he will be preceded by a messenger, which is John the Baptist. And so you begin to just put things like that together and you think, well, who in the world could ever bring all of those random things together? And you come down to the person of Jesus. And so I share those things today because we think about this theme of prophecy to, to encourage us towards faith and um, an obedience to the Lord. Because what happens in our life sometimes is that life can feel very random. It can feel very disconnected. It can feel very confusing and hard. But yet you look back in the Old Testament and God, throughout all those random, hard, difficult times in Israel's ups and downs of their life and their history, and what you find is that God was faithfully at work in their lives. And then the same thing is true today. I think oftentimes we... we get so lost in all of the what's and the when's and the how's that we forget there is a who who is walking with us and navigating and walking and working with us and for us and trying to call us up to levels of faith and obedience in following him. And so um, there's this picture presented to us of these prophecies that are supposed to build our faith and encouragement and, and draw us to trust God when we don't know if we should or not. And so he puts these things in place to encourage that trust and that belief and that obedience in the Lord. And so you've got two groups of people presented here today. You've got a group of people in Psalm chapter 2 who are, are hard-hearted and rebellious and angry towards God because God's trying to um, take the reins from them. And there's this fight over who's going to control their life. But the beautiful thing about Psalm 2 is if you just back up one chapter to Psalm 1, and you begin to read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together, you find a contrast. And I put the wrong verse on the screen here. I didn't catch this till in between services, so I apologize to the first service people. But in Psalm chapter 1, there's that verse where it talks about why do the people's plot. That word plot is the very same word <clears throat> that when you go back to Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, and you read these words, there's a word that's the same. But it's about the difference between what people are focused on. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or, or take, sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The word in chapter 2 for plotting, that idea of sitting around thinking about, well, how can I do it not God's way? Versus Psalm 1 elevates the person, the character who meditates on God's law. I want to know what God thinks. I want to know God's heart. I want to do it God's way. There are two different mindsets in these two chapters. Again, just back to back. And if you read them straight through, you get the contrast. What are you meditating on? What is your mind fixated on? What is your mind plotting, I guess? It's the same Hebrew word. Um, it's meditate in one, it's plotting in the other because one's positive and one has got negative connotations to it. But listen to what the psalmist in Psalm 1 promises to the person whose mind is set on God and his words and his heart. Psalm 1.3 goes on to say, that person, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water. What's that gonna be? It's gonna provide life to that tree which yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. But not so the wicked, he goes on to say. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. 
um, we saw a few weeks ago, the wind got up and all the leaves, right, the chaff of the trees, they all blew into somebody else's yard, hopefully, not yours. So, but they blew away, or hopefully they blew your leaves into someone else's yard. How about that? Uh, but they're chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Where does that peace come from? Where does that sense of calm that exists in heaven, how does it fill a human heart? It's when our lives are centered and focused and our minds meditate on God and his words because we know that God is watching over the way of the righteous. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean life gets easy. But in the midst of those hard, difficult things that, that the need for Christmas shows in our life, that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So I would simply just ask you today, where is your heart set? Where does your mind set today? I love the way Paul would write in Colossians chapter three, um, these encouraging words. Based upon all that Christ, the Messiah, came to do and to be, um, Paul would eventually write these words. Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, meditate, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Psalm chapters one and two give us a choice. It calls us to say, well, what's your heart? What is your mind set upon? Is your heart just mind just consumed with the things of this life to the point where you never think of the eternal, never think of the sovereignty of God, never think of the, the God who's in control of all things and how that makes a difference in your life? Or do you live a life where your mind is certainly busy and doing all the things of this life? This isn't about laziness or neglect, but you're busy, but your mind also is aware that there is another reality that is informing your day in and day out life. There is the reality of the God who sits enthroned in heaven, who's complete calm, complete peace, and is working out his plan in his time and in his way. And I would just ask you today, as you walk through some of those difficult things that, that makes Christmas, that makes the coming of Jesus necessary, I would just ask where your heart and your mind is set today. May it be set upon the Lord, upon his words, upon his works for us, and upon his will for us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come today and we acknowledge that um, in our lives that there's always the temptation to want to take the reins and to rule our own life, just like that Psalm 2 talked about. So Father, we come today and ask that you would help us to be a humble people, a broken people, a submissive people, we confess our rebellion. We confess our willingness to, uh, to do it our own way and disregard your way. And so, Father, we come and we ask for your grace and your forgiveness for the times we have done that and even the spirit that drives that. Father, we thank you today also, though, that there's a reminder that no matter what one of us does or seven billion of us do on this planet, that you sit calmly and assuredly and sovereignly on your throne in heaven. 
And so the choice then becomes ours. What will we do with that? Father, today may we bow. May we kiss the king. May we bow before the king and surrender our lives. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. We just bow before our king, ready to do his bidding, loving him for what he's done for us. So, Father, come today and and do that work within us and change our hearts to be more like the the heart of Psalm 1 and not the heart of Psalm 2. And so we love you and thank you for Christ and what he's done for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.